Um, but let's get right to it. Are you? <laughs> God, if I get one more mention of Antigone, I'm out of here. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, so you all know you're supposed to be here and not. That's why you're here, right? You didn't think you were cutting class by ducking into here and, oh, no, everyone else came. <laughs> Good. Um, all right. Um, how's King Lear going? How many people have actually finished? Uh, all right. That's good. How many people have actually started? Um, well, if you finished, I also hope you started. <laughs> but you never know. You know, it's, it's, okay, I got an exam. I guess I'll read the last scene. Um, it works. It could work if you're really good at figuring out how literature works. That's what this course will teach you, how to figure out how you get to any last scene, how it has to be. Um, so that's, that is um, part of what we'll be doing. Uh, King Lear is a tragedy. Um, you, you will have to have finished it by um, next Monday, even though we are many, many weeks behind in this class. Uh, at some point, we'll play catch-up. Um, King Lear is a tragedy. The definition of a tragedy, um, the, the um, 140 character definition of a tragedy would be what? I'm going to try to learn people's names. I'm going to fail, but I'm going to try. But So what? if you were to tweet the definition of a tragedy, what would you tweet? Anyone? Yeah. Ends in death. Ends in death, yes. Name? Phoebe. Phoebe. Okay, ends in death. Um, that's, the, that's the spoiler alert. Most people in King Lear die. If you haven't finished it, if you have finished it, you will know who doesn't die. Everyone can't die in a Shakespearean tragedy. Um, but in a tragedy, everyone, pretty much everyone we care about, um, might die. Um, often there's a character who, or two who doesn't. And that's an interesting fact. Um, the re the, there's a technical reason that everyone can't die that we won't be spending much time on in this class, but that we do spend time on in Shakespeare. Um, that reason is there are no curtains on the Shakespearean stage. And what that means is that scene endings and play endings, you can't either black out the stage or um, bring down a curtain at which point everyone can get up and take their bows. Um, when someone dies on Shakespeare's stage, he has to figure out a way either to get them off stage um, or, and if they die in the middle of the play, he definitely has to figure out a way to get them off stage because the way scenes change in Shakespeare is that the stage is empty for a moment. A set of characters leaves the stage, and another set of characters um, enters the stage. Um, scenes in Shakespeare always have two different sets of characters at the transition from one scene to another. That's how you know it's a new scene. If there's a character on stage, and the character goes off stage and comes back on, you might think the scene is continuing. That is, the character the scene ends because the stage is empty, but then a character returns, and you might think that the character has just gone to see who's knocking at the door or who's knocking at the gate. Um, but the way you know it's a new scene and the way you know it intuitively, the way Shakespeare's audience knows it intuitively, is that a new group of people shows up. One group of people leaves, a new group of people shows up. And what that means is that all Shakespearean drama is also a set and series of microdramas. Scenes are dramas, that is to say, drama also in the modern um, colloquial sense, drama um, between characters, um, characters in conflict. That's the definition of a scene 
in any kind of Shakespeare play is that there's conflict. It may not be mean conflict. It may be a conflict in which people are outbidding each other to say how much, guess how much I love you, if you know that children's book. Guess how much I love you. Um, this much. No, even more. Um, so the drama, the conflict might be um, a pleasant one. It might be who kisses first. It might be who kisses longer. It might be um, who loves the other one most. But there's always some kind of conflict because that's what makes any conversation interesting. And the first rule of writing drama is the audience has to be interested. Now, because you can't ring down a curtain, because you can't black out, Shakespeare's plays were written to be performed outdoors in the afternoon. Um, the Globe Theater and other theaters before the Globe were outdoor open-air theaters. They were, they were like stadiums, um, not indoor stadiums, but outdoor stadiums. And so they were done with natural light, or they were written with natu natural light in mind. So you can always see the stage. So a bunch of people who are engaged in conflict and drama have their little conflict and drama, and then they leave. And then another bunch of people also engaged in conflict and drama have their little conflict and drama when they come in. And that's always the change of scene. Think about it as hanging out all day at Starbucks and watching what happens at next tables. So people vacate a table after they have their fight or their makeup or their job interview, and then some other people come in and they have some other conflict um, at Starbucks, and the kid starts you know, um, saying how much he doesn't like this kind of hot chocolate. And you know, if you're, if you're bored, you eavesdrop, and it's interesting. So drama is just the sublime version of being at a restaurant, listening, and eavesdropping. Um, so one thing then that happens is in drama, there are always two sets of conflicts or two levels of conflicts at the very least. Again, this is Shakespearean drama. This is not necessarily the way other kinds of drama work, but the way Shakespearean drama in particular and English drama in general at the time of Shakespeare works is that you have conflicts within scenes and then you have within groups, that is to say, because a scene is about a group. The group may reshape itself in the course of a scene. People may leave, people may enter, um, people may stalk out, and the people who are left over might roll their eyes at each other about the person who's just stalked out or might say, you know, they were right to stalk out or whatever. Um, so it's not that you have a group of people that's static necessarily within a scene, but you can. And whatever group of people you have in a scene, there's conflict. If there's only one person in the scene, then it's a scene of self-conflict. That's what you get. In soliloquies, you might, the self-conflict might be um, the most basic self-conflict there is. To be or not to be, that might be the conflict that a character goes through in a scene alone, to wonder whether to continue to exist or not. Um, so it can be conflict within a person, between people, among people. You all know the difference of, of among, within, between, and among, right? Within is one person, between is two, among is three or more. That's a BS rule, but that is, that's the rule that some people will have learned. And you can't really go wrong if you follow it. Um, so that's within a scene, but because you have groups of people, you also have conflicts between those groups or sometimes among those groups, depending on how many different groups there are. So two levels of conflict, conflict within a scene, conflict 
between groups that appear from one scene to another. Most obvious case, and we will be seeing this towards the end of King Lear, is when you look at the French camp and then you look at the English camp. Um, they're going to go to war. They're going to fight, but first you see what's happening on each side. So to do scenes like that, and Shakespeare has lots of wars and battles in his plays, what you will have is, for example, um, the southern English or the English court and their soldiers discussing the war the next morning, and then they'll get ready and prepare themselves for battle, and then the northern rebels will come in and discuss the battle that they're going to have the same morning with the people we've just seen. So when you shift scenes, often that shift in scene, and this will become more and more intense as plays get more intense as they reach their climax, often the difference between scenes will be the difference, um, will be a conflict between the group in one scene and the group in the next scene. Um, so that's the basic way that Shakespearean drama works. Um, not everyone can die because there have to be people left over to say stuff at the end of the play, to talk about the dead, and often to get the dead off stage. So, for example, at the end of Hamlet, spoiler, Fortinbras comes back, Hamlet is dead, Claudius is dead, Hamlet's mother is dead, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, although they're dead off stage, they're still dead. Laertes is dead, Ophelia has died, Polonius has died, lots of dead people in Hamlet. It takes a long time for anyone to die in Hamlet, but when they die, they fall like dominoes. Um, death brings on death brings on death, and then Fortinbras comes in and he says, um, hey, do you guys know Four Weddings and a Funeral? No? Okay, it's a great movie, you should see it. Um, so I'm not going to quote the skinhead Hamlet version of the line. Um, but he basically says, what's going on here? Um, and Horatia says, well, they all died except Hamlet. Uh, I mean, they all died except me. And um, Fortinbras says, well, Hamlet was probably the good guy. Let's give them all funerals. Um, take them off stage, and we'll um, shoot a salute in their honor. So they're all born off stage. They're all taken off stage. So not everyone dies in a Shakespearean tragedy. And the reason... Um, the technical reason is it's really, really hard to make a play work in which everyone is scattered on the stage looking dead, and then at a given moment, they all we applaud them because they're dead, which is already weird and doesn't feel like a reasonable thing to do. And then they all get up and bow and say, psych, not really dead, but we knew they weren't really dead. Um, so that's the technical reason. Um, the... What Shakespeare always did was he made um, champagne out of whatever technical lemons he was given. And what this means is that there always has to be a kind of witnessing to this death. And this tells you something really important about the way drama works, which is drama is about witnessing and caring about how other people feel. Um, the experience that we have actually in any fiction, and it's a puzzle why we have this experience, but the experience that we have in any fiction is what's called vicarious experience. Vicarious experience means it's not you, not your experience that you care about, but the experience about and the experience of other people. Now, the standard way of explaining why we care about others, 
why we care about fictional characters, which is a really weird thing. Who are really weird, who, weird people to care about? Um, why we care about fictional characters? The standard explanation is we identify with them. Um, but that doesn't quite make sense um, because it's, we never think we're those fictional characters. Um, we care about what they're going through even though we know they're fiction, even though we know these are actors. We still care about what happens to them. We still understand their point of view, although we're seeing things from our own point of view in the audience. Now that fact about drama, it's a puzzle why it should be, and we may or may not um, try to chip away a little bit at that puzzle in the course of this course, but let it be a puzzle. I'll just say parenthetically, um, a really important principle is don't solve problems too quickly. Um, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein put it as saying, um, don't think you understand, but be surprised by a whole lot of ways that we have of thinking and acting. Allow yourself to be puzzled. Don't try to solve puzzles too quickly. So a puzzle you should allow yourself to be puzzled by is why we care about fictional characters who, if they were real, this is something that's going to come up um, when we talk um, early next week about what reality the fictional King Lear and Cordelia and, and so on had in history. Why do we care about fictional characters who, if they were real, would be dead anyhow by now? If you read a Jane Austen novel and you really hope that um, character A and character B get together at the end, but they're all living in the year 18 dash, whatever that dash is, um, why could it possibly matter since even if they do get together, they would be over 200 years old now? Um, why would we care about them getting together 200 years ago? Why does it matter to us? As I say, the standard answer is, oh, because we identify with them. But that's not really an answer. That's just a way of giving words to the question itself. Why do we care we identify with them. What does it mean to identify with them? It means we care what happens to them. It's a circular answer. So allow yourself to be surprised by the fact that we care about fictional characters, that we care about the dead, that we care whether, you know, some people will look at the dates of people when they're reading history books and they'll say something like, oh, well, Hobbes got to live to be 90. That's nice, but, you know, poor, poor Galois died in a duel at age 21. That's really, really terrible. Well, no, it isn't because they'd both be dead by now anyhow, no matter what. And as soon as they were dead, it didn't matter how long they lived. We should only care about the living, you would think. Um, and yet we don't. We feel emotions on behalf of those who can't be feeling emotions, but as though they were. Um, so caring about people in the past, caring about fictional characters on the stage, in a novel, um, let that be an interesting question for you. Um, not a question that we'll try to answer now, um, and perhaps not at all in this course, but let it be an interesting question for you. And understand as well that if you're a writer like Shakespeare, like many, if not most of the writers will be reading, it's an interesting question for them. 
it was an interesting question for Shakespeare and his contemporaries, one of whom, Thomas Nash, a friend of Shakespeare's, was talking about a scene in a Shakespeare play about a character named Talbot who gets killed <coughs> in a war. And what he says is that Talbot, if he had come back to life 200 years after his death, would have taken great joy in watching the audience weeping to see him die on stage. And Na one of the things Nash is saying is, it's just amazing that Shakespeare could make people weep for the death of a historical character. And if Talbot watched the people weeping to see his death, he would have been full of joy at the fact that they were weeping over the fact that he had died. So there's a, that, that's someone, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, really impressed by how much emotion Shakespeare can get out of an audience for someone who, as he puts it, had already lain in his grave for all those hundreds of years. And yet, people are weeping him, says Nash, as though he were new dead, as though he had just died. They were mourning for him. Um, so that's a surprise. But the other thing Nash is saying, and this is interesting, is that Talbot, if he came back to life, would have taken pleasure in the audience feeling sadness over his painful death. So that's another kind of vicarious experience. That is, he likes how the audience would feel. He would have a feeling based on the audience's feeling about the feeling that he had when he died. So what happens at the end of a play is there are witnesses, what happens at the end of a tragedy is there are witnesses to the deaths of the main characters who are still on stage. If everyone dies, we just think, okay, bloodbath. Um, it's the Hateful Eight, if everyone dies. Um, oh, sorry, was that a spoiler? Um, eh, it's Tarantino, couldn't be a spoiler. If everyone dies, um, then it's a bloodbath and it's over. But if there are people on stage who are mourning, then in a sense, it's easier for us to feel sad because we feel sad on behalf of the characters who are there feeling sad more than we feel sad on behalf of the dead. It's two levels, you could say, of vicarious experience. We in the audience are both like and unlike the witnesses of the deaths of the main characters. So the last lines in King Lear, anyone quote them? Anyone remember them? It's Edgar saying of all the disaster that has just happened, the weight of this sad time we must obey, speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. So what he's saying is the dead people on stage now, we're witnesses. We will never experience what they've experienced, but we have witnessed their experience of it and therefore, we are obeying the weight of this sad time. So Edgar is sad. 
the survivors are sad at the end of King Lear. And if they weren't there to be sad, we in the audience might feel devastated but not sad, you could say. And there's a difference. We might feel all those characters I liked are dead, but we wouldn't feel that we were sharing it somehow with the people on stage. So the technical reason that everyone can't die also becomes a psychological feature of these plays, which is that we are feeling on behalf of people on stage who are themselves feeling sad on behalf of other people on stage. And that level, that you can have many, many levels of such experience. They're particularly endemic to drama and to film, to acted out narrative. Um, although there's a version of them that will occur in told narrative, like novels and stories and epic poems. But let's just briefly talk about, um, not talk about um, the other kind of narrative, which we will get to in this class, um, but talk about what happens in drama. In drama, because drama is always about conflict and conflict that almost always takes place in language, in conversation, in people talking to each other, in people trying to get something out of someone else by persuading or forcing or convincing or blackmailing them to do something um, while the other person tries to get something out of the first person. Again, the most basic definition of a scene in any kind of drama from Aeschylus to Quentin Tarantino is that there are at least two people Usually, soliloquies would be the special case where there are two people in one person, but there are at least two people, each of which is trying to get something out of the other person while not giving up everything that the other person wants to get out of them. So, each, so it's a kind of negotiation where each of them is trying to get something, the truth, or money, or permission, or... Um, um, where the treasure is hidden, each is trying to get something out of the other person, and the other person is trying to get something out of them. So basic scene, a person is being tortured to say where the treasure is. The torturer wants to know where the treasure is, and that's what the torturer wants out of the victim. And the torturer is working to get it out of the victim. What does the victim want out of the torturer? Not to be killed. Not to be strangled when he gives it up, when he gives the information up. So it doesn't mean that if each wants something out of the other that they're in any kind of equality, any relationship of equality. It just means that what makes something dramatic is that there's resistance to what a character wants out of another character, and that resistance is itself the resisting character wanting something out of the first character. We could call the first character literally the protagonist, which means first character or first player. In Greek, the protagonist means the first player. And, and there's a reason plays are called plays. Not because it's just play acting and pretend, but because it's like playing a game. We are watching a conflict which is like a, like a sporting conflict or a game conflict. We root for characters just as we root for 
athletes. So the protagonist is the first player, the antagonist is the player who is opposing and resisting that first player. The protagonist wants something that the antagonist doesn't want her to get. The antagonist will give it to her if she gets something that the protagonist doesn't want to give up for that information. Next time you watch TV, next time you go to a movie, next time you see any kind of scene, notice how you can break that scene down to that bare skeletal essence. That's what all any interesting scene is like under the hood. I had occasion to be looking um, at TV screenplays uh, just about a year ago, um, just looking for a typical moment um, which is a moment just like King Lear, which you'll see all the time, where someone will come in and say, um, hey, you look disturbed, what's up? Oh, nothing. What's the next line going to be? It's never going to be, oh, okay then. It's a, the whole point of you look disturbed, what's up, or something's on your mind, or I can see that you're thinking about something, and then the, that person saying, no, there's nothing there, is that that's a lie. And then we have drama. And we have drama when the first person then just says, no, I know there's something on your mind. And we also know at that point that we're going to find out what it is. We may not find out what it is immediately, but we usually will. In TV, you almost always will. It's a good way to start a scene and to get a conversation going. What's on your mind? Nothing. Oh, come on, tell me. No, really, nothing. Come on, you can trust me. All right, but you're going to laugh. And then we find out what's going on. So you'll see that scene over and over and over again. Now, this allows, and here is how we're going to um, begin King Lear. This allows for the very important concept of a window character or of windows onto what's going on in drama. Because in drama, you don't have, st you don't have a narrator, usually, occasionally you do, called a chorus, but you don't have a narrator telling you what's going on or explaining what's going on. We need to be brought up to speed. So how are we brought up to speed? Usually through conversations in which people, one person will say, hey, what's going on? Things look really weird in this town. And another person will say, well, there's been a plague here ever since Oedipus became king and married Queen Jocasta. And the first person says, huh, I wonder why. Um, and the second person will say, you know, Oedipus just showed up out of nowhere. And eventually we'll figure out why. But the first thing we have to know is that there's a plague. Um, so what, draw, what you will get are conversations. And conversations will be between the kind of characters who survive. Um, how many of you know the Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock? Um, so what's your name? Dunya. Dunya? Danielle. Oh, Danielle, yeah. Um, in The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, um, do you remember the stanza that begins, I'm not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be? Does anyone remember that? Um, Jackson, can you recite it? No, I'm not going to stand. All right, because neither can I, but I'll try. Um, Twas Brillig and the Slut. No, wrong. Um, it was no. So Prufrock is basically the kind of person, and this is what he says in this stanza. He is the kind of person, as you can tell from the title, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. This is not the love song of Romeo or of King Lear. It's J. Alfred Prufrock. And so Prufrock um, realizes he's the kind of person that a Shakespeare play would never be written 
about. He's the kind of person that even Arthur Miller wouldn't write a play about. Um, he's just not very important. So, and he's thinking about this, and the interestingness of the poem is that it's the um, thoughts and meditations of a mediocrity who's a real person. That is, that um, it's about how being a person isn't something opposed to being mediocre, that, me that being a mediocrity is not important, because what's important is that you're a person. Being a mediocrity is a very, very minor fact about a person. But one fact about it is you won't have plays written about you. You will, however, have a poem written by T.S. Eliot about you. And so at one point he's thinking, and what he thinks is, no, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I am an attendant lord, um, one that will do to swell a progress start a scene or two. So Prufrock is, you know, when you have enter Lear, um, Cordelia, Regan, Goneril, etc., with lords. Prufrock is one of those withs with lords. I am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, that is, um, to add yet another body to the train of um, attendant lords coming in with the king. Start a scene or two. Um, what is it? Pompous, um, um, pompous, officious, and a bit obtuse. Um, at times, almost ridiculous. Almost, at times, the fool. So that's Prufrock's self-description. Um, <coughs> but notice the phrase, to start a scene or two. And what he's thinking about, what Eliot is thinking about, what Prufrock is thinking about a little bit, is the beginning of King Lear. So at the beginning of King Lear, we have a scene which is started with people who don't seem to be particularly important. Those people are Kent, Gloucester, and Edmund. And they're having a conversation about what the king is doing, how he's dividing the kingdom, what's going to happen. And these are window characters they get us ready for the major thing that's going to happen next, which is Lear coming in and saying, here is the drama that's about to begin. I have two daughters who are married, two sons-in-law, and um, I have a third daughter who is now going to marry one of two suitors. Um, those suitors being either the Duke of Burgundy or the King of France. And today is the day that Cordelia will, um, her, her, her marriage will be decided, who it will be. So notice that that's a kind of fairy tale beginning once Lear comes in. First we have a kind of normal conversation between two attendant lords Kent and Gloucester, and the bastard son of one of those lords, Edmund. Then in comes Lear, and he's a sort of fairy tale-ish character. And what he says is, now my youngest daughter is going to choose a husband. And we think, okay, drama, that's what it's going to be. And then Lear does, out of nowhere, does a kind of fairy tale-ish kind of thing, which is he says, I will give the richest third of my kingdom to the daughter who says she loves me most. 
and that doesn't feel at all like politics. That doesn't feel, I mean, we know who Donald Trump would give a third of his kingdom to. We know which daughter. Um, <laughs> but this doesn't feel like everyday politics. The division of the kingdom feels like something that a fairy tale king would do. Once upon a time, there was a king, and the king decided that he would divide his kingdom among his children, but first he would set up a test to see which one loved him most. That's a fairy tale. That's not history. Um, but that's what Lear does. And then he goes to his first two daughters, already married. He explains that he's a very old man. Anyone know how old Lear is? <laughs> of course you do, Hannah. How old is he? No, 80 years and upwards, four score and upwards, not an hour more nor less. A strange line that Lear later um, describes himself as. We spent um, many minutes on this in the Shakespeare class in the fall. Um, so Lear is a man in his 80s, um, and what he's ready to do at the beginning of the play is die. So notice that Shakespeare, who is always a radical experimentalist, is setting himself a really interesting task. Others have done it after Shakespeare. There have been people who did it before Shakespeare, notably Sophocles. But he's setting himself a very interesting task, which is to write a tragedy, where the definition of tragedy is the main character dies, let's say, to write a tragedy about someone who, in Act 1, Scene 1, says, I'm about to die, and I'm okay with that. I'm giving my kingdom away because I'm a very old man. I lived a very long time. You couldn't ask for more. So how do you write a tragedy about someone who is about to die anyhow? Um, that is the task Shakespeare sets himself. Um, you, if the only thing by Shakespeare that survived were King Lear, that would be a strong thing for me to be saying. But if you look at the course of Shakespeare's career, you can see the progression of harder and harder setups that he embraces in order to see what he can do with them. So in Macbeth, for example, if you know Macbeth, you could say Shakespeare saying to himself, how do I write a tragedy about someone who's purely evil? Um, can you make that into a tragedy? And the answer is, if you are Shakespeare, you can. Um, in Lear, the question is, how do I write a tragedy about a man who is about to die anyhow? How do I make that into a tragedy? And just to make it a little bit harder, how do I make it about a man who no one likes at the end of scene one because he behaves like such a jerk? Because he actually turns out to be a really cranky, self-righteous idiot of an old man who is about to die anyhow. So just think of your grandparents' most unpleasant friends um, and think about writing a tragedy about them. Um, oldest and most unpleasant friends and think about writing a tragedy about them. That's what Shakespeare is trying to do, trying to do. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do, which is why he's trying to do it. Um, so here, Lear comes in, fairy tale demands. Um, the king in a fairy tale, or the ruler in a fairy tale, this is a standard structure of fairy tale, who makes those demands is often, though not always, a jerk. That is, yes, you can marry my daughter if you get me the Holy Grail. Otherwise, you die. 
Um, so that's a standard kind of fairy tale setup. We don't, obviously, we don't get that in King Lear, but we do get a fairy tale demand. Which of you, love, shall we say, doth love us most, that we, our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge? He then does this thing, which um, I hope you felt made no sense, because it doesn't make sense. It's not Shakespeare who is cutting corners. It's Lear who's cutting corners. And the corners that he cuts are, he says to Goneril, Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. And she says, um, you're so great. I adore you. No one could be better than you. And Lear then says to her, that's really good. You tied for second. And this is before the other two daughters have competed. So if you felt like, wait, what? Shouldn't he be hearing what all three daughters say before he decides who's won? The answer is, yeah, he should, but no, he isn't. Because that's the kind of person he is. Regan repeats what Goneril says. She basically says, mega dittos plus more. Um, and again, Lear says, good, you too tied for second. We already know that they tied for second because that's the first thing that Kent and Goneril, and Kent, excuse me, and Gloucester say to each other at the beginning of the play. I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall, that is the two husbands of the two daughters. Um, Yes, so it did seem to us, but in the division of the kingdom, curiosity and neither can make choice of either's moiety. That is, neither can think that the other got a better portion. So the king may have seemed like he liked one better than the other, but he divided the kingdom absolutely equally. So now he turns to Cordelia, who is about to be married to either Burgundy or France, and says, what can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? And she very famously answers, nothing. And Lear can't believe it. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again, he said. But, Lear, but Cordelia refuses to give Lear what he wants, which is the great speech of love. And what that refusal means, as far as Lear is concerned, is she's not going to get married at all. However, Act One, Act one Scene One is itself a drama, and the drama is basically this. We feel we know, of course, that Cordelia has done the right thing. And as in many fairy tales, um, like The Wife of Bath's Tale, which... Um, I could have added to this course, but I thought maybe there was already enough reading in it. But in Chaucer's Wife of Bath's tale, um, as in many fairy tales, what happens is the prince um, kisses the witch or the old woman. The princess kisses the frog. They don't want to do it, but they see that it's the right thing to do for purely unselfish reasons. And then they get rewarded. So the kind of fairy tale where someone really, really doesn't want to do something. It looks like a loss, but it looks like, nevertheless, it's morally right for them to give up on their hopes and to accept this loss in order to save someone else who we don't particularly care about, but we know it's the morally right thing to do. Standard fairy tale. Turns out to have been a test. So that standard fairy tale turns out to have been a test the frog turns out to be a prince. The old um, hag turns out to be a princess or a fairy godmother or something like that. Um, 
dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of stories like that. And Shakespeare has shaped scene one as that kind of story, which is that between Burgundy and France, we had no idea who loved Cordelia better. Same question, whom shall we say that love us most? We had no idea. But it turns out that Burgundy's a jerk. That Lear says to Burgundy, will you take her without a dowry? And Burgundy says, no, just give me the money you promised, and I'll take her. And Lear says, no, she's dowered with our hate. If you take her, you get, that's all you get. And Burgundy apologizes, but says, no. But France then says, yes, if she, t if she spoke truth to power, if you're angry at her because she told you the truth, which is that she loved you as much as she was supposed to love you, that she really did love you, but that she wasn't a fawning flatterer enslaved to you, if she was willing to tell the truth, and what Lear says to Cordelia when he curses her is, thy truth then be thy dower. Your dowry is that you tell the truth and nothing else. That's the dowry France wants. So he takes her, as he says, most rich being poor, most loved being despised. So France passes a test. That part is obvious, that we are on France's side rather than Burgundy's. We're also on France's side rather than Lear's, so the king of France, not the king of England. And we also feel like Lear got his comeuppance. He thought he'd humiliated Cordelia, but no. It turns out that what he did to Cordelia and Cordelia's passing that test, and we feel it's a test. If she had flattered the way her other sisters did, we would have, had, we would have felt distaste for her. But she passes a test. She's the good daughter. She's the Cinderella, the youngest of the three. This is something that we'll be looking at a little bit when we read Freud's short essay, The Theme of the Three Caskets. She's the Cinderella figure. And because she doesn't act out of, um, out of greed and out of Machiavellian self-dealing, we like her best. Lear no longer does. And yet now we do. And then we like the fact that France likes her for the same reason that we like her. So there again, you're having a set of vicarious experiences. We are glad that France feels about Cordelia the way we feel about Cordelia. We are glad that people are seeing Lear a little bit um, um, undercut or plenty undercut, um, shown up by the fact that France takes Cordelia. So Cordelia, so Shakespeare with very great economy um, sets up not one, not two, but three tests at the beginning of King Lear. A bad test, the one Lear sets up, which of you shall we say doth love us most? But a test that Cordelia passes because she turns it into a good test. I will win in the audience's eyes, although because I'll be willing to lose in your eyes, 
she says to Lear. I will win in the audience's eyes, but she doesn't know there is an audience. I will win in the audience's eyes because I won't lie. So we in the audience will love her for it. And then, to our surprise and delight, there's a happy ending. It's a kind of comedy because France loves her for it as well. So Act 1, Scene 1 of King Lear is like a very small comedy, not, a, not an uproarious, ha, 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 I never laughed so much um, kind of comedy, um, but nevertheless it has comic structure, and the comedy is the comic structure of a fairy tale. And I hope everyone just felt happy when France did the right thing. Um, it looked good for him, it looked good for her. Um, in the meantime, Kent, who thought he was an attendant lord, one that would do to swell a progress start a scene or two, gets banished. And he too gets banished for speaking truth to power. And it's not really a happy ending for him. He's threatened with death. In the meantime, there have been these two, it seems, clearly minor characters, Gloucester and Edmund, at the very beginning of the play, who, who have been discussing with Kent the stuff that's going on. But now it's the end of the first scene, so we need a second scene. And what that means is everyone, pretty much, who was there in the first scene disappears. And a new <coughs> person or group of people will come in at the beginning of the second scene. So who comes in? Edmund, who we thought was almost a no one in the first scene, who did almost nothing. Suddenly he comes in and soliloquizes and gives the great soliloquy of evil. Thou nature art my goddess, unto thee, we have three minutes, unto, me, unto thee my services are bound. So now here comes Edmund talking about what a pain it is to be a bastard, but how it's also okay. And so suddenly we have another main character, or at least another major character, Edmund. He's not coming on stage with his father and saying, wow, that was kind of interesting what happened in that last scene. I wonder what will happen next. But no, he's got his own plans. So we have one story set going, the story of Lear and Cordelia, and now we have another story set going, the story of Edmund and Gloucester and Edgar. And the crucial thing to see is that these stories braid with each other, that, of course, the story of Lear and his daughters is like the story of Gloucester and his sons, that Lear has daughters who hate him but pretend to love him, and a daughter who loves him that he doesn't realize loves him. Gloucester has a son who hates him but pretends to love him, and a son who does love him who Gloucester thinks hates him. And so we get two fairly similar versions of the story of the father and his mistaken idea of which children are good and which children are evil, which of his children want to see him dead and which ones want to see him alive. But the stories are sufficiently different, and they are different, that they become interesting stories. And again, it's important to see that sometimes Lear and sometimes his daughters will be witnesses to the Gloucester, Edgar, Edmund story, and sometimes Gloucester, Edgar, and Edmund will be witnesses to the Lear, Regan, and Goneril story, 
and each will be windows onto the other, but then Shakespeare will tighten the braid more and more so that the two stories become <laughs> one story. Last thing to say is that Prufrock and Eliot, who um, basically saw Shakespeare as competition and put him down whenever he could, um, talks about how Prufrock feels at times almost ridiculous, almost at times the fool. Um, Eliot was not thinking about the fool in King Lear when he said that, because the fool in King Lear, for some people, is the most remarkable character that Shakespeare ever invented. Um, and part of what's remarkable about him, let's just leave it with this, is that he is and has to be and is amazing because he is a two-dimensional character. What is happening with the fool is you're getting a character for whom depth is not an issue because that's not the direction where his fantasticness lies. What it lies in, and here's the last thing I'll say about him, is this. The Fool is the only character in King Lear, and I'm including Cordelia when I say this, the Fool is the only character in King Lear who never lies. And um, that's a striking thing, that the Fool never lies. Um, he's an amazing character, and we'll pick up um, with him tomorrow. So keep reading if you haven't. If you've read the play, reread it. If you've already reread it, reread it. You can't do better in life than spend all your time reading King Lear. Okay, see you guys tomorrow.